Nothing discussed with Captain Mike Lambert in this conversation is meant to diagnose or treat any condition or takes the place of talking with your own healthcare professionals. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to another edition of From Anxiety to Clarity. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich from Sutter Health Kahimohala, and this is a project of both Kahimohala and our friends at Brain Gain Hawaii, namely the Leong family. And we're really glad to be able to have conversations as we've been doing for these last 20 weeks or so about how we're all coping with COVID-19 in our lives and how it's ever-changing and what changes may come as uh, we move through this time into whatever is next. It's been a difficult time for many, many people, continues to be a difficult time, and we're hoping that these conversations are helping just a little So where are we now? Well, we're approaching mid-September. We are in a time of shutdown for Oahu for many, many things, with the exception of beaches and parks and trails, if you walk alone. But if you don't, you could be in trouble. We also found out this weekend that our Lieutenant Governor, Josh Green, is also COVID positive, as is someone in his office. And we're waiting to find out about how more people in that office may be affected as we're seeing many, many more people affected within Hawaii. And we have a great deal of cases that keep coming up still in the triple digits every single day. Most of this week, that's where we were at. So there's plenty to be anxious about, but there's also joy to be found in the world. And there are also those small moments that happen as we're all inside. And as we look at the world outside, taking different perspectives, today we're going to talk with Captain, very, very soon to be Major Mike Lambert of HPD. He has been really the driving force behind the programs that help homeless people and sheltered people, people dealing with mental illness. A few years ago, the Mental Health America of Hawaii chapter gave him an award well-deserved for all of his efforts, namely for Hono, for the Homeless Outreach and Navigation, uh, for Unsheltered Persons. I hope I've got that right, Mike. And I uh, hope oh, that works. And <laughs> recently for POST, the Provisional Outdoor Screening and Triage, which has been a real boon for those who are unsheltered and who are also needing to have a place to be in this time of COVID. So with that, I want to welcome Captain, I really want to say major because it's only going to be another week or so. So I'm going to say major Mike Lambert to From Anxiety to Clarity. Hi there. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to hear what I have to say. (laughs) Well, I, I appreciate you for everything that you've been doing, which has been considerable. And I wanted to ask you this. I know I never got a chance to ask you when we were at the Mental Health America of Hawaii meeting where we were big luncheon where we gave you the award a few years ago and full disclosure I'm on their board but um, what led you to want to do this kind of work what was that lens that you were looking through as an HPD officer now of what 17 going on 18 years where this would be something that really touched your heart right so um, great question Beth so it's one of those, what, what makes someone come out of their lane? What makes somebody decide that we need to do more as a profession, as an agency? So what happened was, is that it was actually born out of enforcement. We were, the sit lie had just started and, you know, they're, they're kind of going in that direction. Law enforcement, we always say, okay, that's our tool. Our tool are, are, are utilizing laws. So what we did was we actually did a huge enforcement operation. You know, we spent a lot of taxpayer dollars to do it. 
And we were actually effective in clearing out Chinatown utilizing Sit, uh, sit Lai, um, only to see that we negatively impacted Evil A, right? Because these people don't disappear. They need to go somewhere. They move. They move, exactly. So, um, you know, we, we celebrated for all of 10 days for Chinatown while Evil A essentially were over on individuals. Um, as, you, as you guys probably track that legislation, or, or that revised ordinances, then Evil A followed and other areas followed, and the problem just dispersed right back into Chinatown. So the commander at the time and myself just said, you know, we gotta we gotta figure out something else. You know, it's it's the equivalent of smashing your foot down in the middle of a puddle, and yeah, the water will you know move away for a very short time, but as soon as you lift your foot, it comes right back. So the trick is to really instead of just trying to move it around the problem, the issue. Why don't we try to pick people up and try to get them into services? So what we started to do from that time on is um, it was documented that uh, I reached out to an officer that actually left the police department to open his own nonprofit, Alea Bridge, uh, Joe Acosta, to see, you know, what what is it that we're doing wrong, right? What is it that we're not getting? And, of course, I got an earful. (laughs) I definitely got an earful. I can imagine. (laughs) <laughs> so I called a meeting with a lot of other providers and um, I always kind of laugh because it was like, is it a trick? You know, so we had Khalif Palama, IHS, um, Alea, of course, uh, H3RC, which was Child Project at the time. And we invited them and we said, you know, to this meeting and everybody was very skeptical about why, who is this Mike Lambert guy and what does he want to talk about? And, and, and it basically started there where I said, you know, HPD wants to improve in the way that we're dealing with the mental illness issue, in the way that we're treating homeless individuals, because we recognize that enforcement alone is not going to solve the problem. And in fact, um, throughout time, we recognized um, through work with providers and seeing firsthand that there are times where enforcement may not be appropriate and outreach may be more beneficial. From that time to now, how has this been moving through HPD and what kind of reception are you getting, you know, with officers? Because we do hear about such mixed uh, reactions when officers come to the door and what people say they are experiencing. Uh, It can be good. It can be not so good. It can be very understanding or can be not understanding at all and sort of fobbing it off and just saying, oh, you know, let them sleep it off or you two patch it up or whatever it may be. Uh, or just with you know people who are are homeless skirting the issue and not taking the kind of care that you would like to see offered. Right, so that's a challenge, um, especially in law enforcement, because there's so much subjectivity in how the officer will apply the law and what resources are available to them. I will say that initially, in 2017, when these initiatives began, there's a lot of skepticism in regards to like, why are we doing this? You know, isn't that somebody else's job? Right, and I was able to find a small group of officers that were like-minded and really took hold. And what I think that people find interesting is that um, later on down the road, I, I kind of asked, right, like, oh, you know what, what led you to coming to help me with my initiative? And they, they actually said that they experienced homelessness as a child. And I was like, I was a little bit away. And I was like, well, okay. And, you know, they said that I have one officer that said they lived on the beach for three years as a child and only in retrospect did he realize that they were homeless, you know, because you're young, you're, you're out there, you just figure you're uh, camping indefinitely. <laughs> and to find out, you know, I, I was blown away. And another 
Another one of my officers was in and out of foster care as a child. The mother, unfortunately, had some um, substance abuse issues. So they're very, very sympathetic. And it kind of opened my eyes to what, what, what I tell the community is that we are, your, your police department is a reflection of the community. The officers that, that staff our positions are no different than anyone else. It's just a profession that we chose. And we have all the same challenges that everyone else has. So um, fast forward, right? I got this, I got a small cadre of officers. We showed a lot of great um, progress. I think in 2018, we helped about 170 people off the street. In 2019, we helped about uh, 260 people um, move from the street to shelter. And as it starts to kind of snowball and officers begin to say, wow, that actually works. It actually works. If you offer them the service, right, in, in lieu of enforcement. And if you make sure that you're appropriate in how you do enforcement, making sure that there's always that outreach leg, that you can actually solve the problem. And I think that one of the biggest issues officers have or, or the community um, has with us is the fact that we're just problem solvers. And what we're going to try to do is we're, we're going to try to solve the problem with whatever's available to us. So at the time prior to our programs, basically it's an arrest, right? That's you know, you're complaining about the male on the sidewalk, we arrest him, we've solved the problem, so to speak, right? But what we, what we noticed on the road is that you really haven't because it's a very minor offense and the person will be out at 8 a.m. only to have the same issue. The long-term bang for your buck is to offer that person shelter, offer that person services, and then not have them return to the street, right? Now you've actually solved the problem. So that's the best scenario, right? Yeah, that's the best case scenario. Right, and but... I'm what I, I'm sorry, what I hear you saying is just looking at this from how do we stop the endless revolving door, which doesn't seem to do anything more than simply perpetuate itself. Um, exactly. And as they say, you know, nothing perpetuates success like success. So now that you've had these couple of years of success with the, the programs that you've started and the, the initiative with the cadre of, of officers who believed in you and continued on with you. Here we are in 2020 dealing with a very different situation that has people not just looking at homeless folks and people with mental illness who are on the street uh, in, in the way that they might have in past, but now they're also looking at them as being potential vectors of a dangerous disease. You stood up the POST program and, I mean, looking at how well and efficiently that happened what do you think we need to do from you know, this point on as we're still continuing with surge and we see these numbers increasing uh, and hoped you know, that we would be in a better place, but we aren't? How do you see this rolling out further to be able to get more of your HPD? I was going to say brethren, but that doesn't take into account the women who are also yes, on the force. But everybody, all police officers, to be able to understand the things that you already do now layered on with COVID-19. Right. So it, it, it has stacked on an additional challenge. And just like, um, you, know, it's important, you know, even prior to COVID, our homeless community, they, they typically become demonized for every problem, right? They're the ones with the drug. They're the ones stealing. They're the ones, you know, robbing. And, and not necessarily is that true. Same thing, fast forward into COVID where, oh, they're the ones spreading COVID. And what we found locally is that that's actually not true. We actually have a very small rate of positives because a lot of times these people, due to their mental illness or physical appearance, people don't come within six feet of them for 15 minutes. And that ability to transmit is low. But there is a huge fear within our encampments that the 
our homeless, our homeless uh, individuals that are a little more social could create, you know, a wildfire effect, you know, in a encampment of, you know, 15 to 20 people. And then the fear is that they'll go ahead and walk around town. So um, the challenges that the officers are seeing out there is that there's a lot of negativity towards the homeless community and they're calling, you know, people calling in and, you know, the homeless are doing this and doing that, not realizing that majority of the violators in regards to, you know, COVID response are actually residents. And we've seen, I think, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's generally, you know, residents that are spreading it amongst each other, you know, at parties and other events. Um, I will say, I will add that um, in regards to the earlier question, in regards to officers taking it, is that COVID has actually created a silver lining um, in regards to social services because my projects were uh, predominantly smaller projects and I would work in these little, you know, three, four officer kind of groups. And because the post became such a huge um, success, in fact, as we speak, there's over 70 individuals in there now receiving shelter services that would have otherwise been, you know, in a park or, or, or some other inappropriate environment. So because it's such a large operation, now we have anywhere from five to six officers out there every day, just cycling 24 hours a day. And all of these officers that would have never been exposed to the programs that we have, right, you know, working in their little areas are now saying, wow, these people are hurting, right? There, there's 70 people, 20 people in their, their security site. And these people are talking to them and getting to know them. And then I really believe that the silver lining is that these officers are understanding that there's a lot of good people that are experiencing homelessness right now. And I believe that will transcend, um, you know, outside of COVID. This, the group that you're talking about that's cycling in and creating security in post, these are officers who weren't necessarily part of your initial cadre of officers. This has expanded to everybody where they're actually put on duty there for a certain period of time and then others come in. So what you're really doing is, exposing them to something that they might never have really been exposed to themselves. And we don't mean COVID-19. Yeah, 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 not (laughs) COVID-19. Not COVID-19, but (laughs) a a way of approaching and and sort of a bridge to accessing these people and seeing them as people in trouble who need their help. Um, I will say this. We have some officers that were very um, stiff, I would say, very... um, you know, letter of the law on our homeless community prior to this event. And they are very, you know, very sure, no, they, they need to follow the law. They need to do this. You know, everybody else does. Um, and they worked, they worked at the post a couple of times and, you know, they really changed the way that they look at the, the crisis, the homeless crisis. And, um, you know, I've seen guys that I would never believe, you know, buying guys shoes, bringing, you know, donating their personal clothes, you know, just amazing things that, um, you know, I don't think that it had COVID not ran its course and us not, not having to create this large environment that um, the officers would have would have had that ability to change the way they think. So I, I'm, in a way, I know it sounds weird, but, you know, COVID has provided some benefit um, in regards to officers and social services. Well, in, in many ways, I think we're seeing some silver linings, not to say that it justifies the deaths and the, you know, the horrific conditions that people have had to go through in not being able to say goodbye to loved ones who were passing or to be able to visit loved ones in nursing homes. Um, but if there is anything good that has truly been coming out of it, I think those attitudinal shifts about homelessness and about mental health are certainly chief among them. 
So at this point where we're coming into you know, mid-September, we're all in, uh, at least on Oahu, in a phase of, of lockdown. How do you think this is, is working? Do you think that this is truly beneficial the way all of this has been happening with you can go out to the park, but it's a solo effort. You can't be with your kids. Um, the, the LG has been very vocally against this, saying that this doesn't make sense and it's not based in science. Do you think that we lost some of the science to make it a little easier for HPD to see that bright line, as the mayor keeps calling it? Right. So it's challenging and it's difficult. So I want to, you know, go ahead and give credit where credit is due. The governor and the mayor, the challenges that they're facing in regards to balancing economy, balancing what um, residents and voters want versus what is probably good for us is a huge, huge challenge. You know, I, I, I see the, you know, the feeling and the sense of the news, you know, how the news reports and what people are, their sentiment is in regards to the latest um, orders and it is challenging and like I said personally you know and it's not the view of the department it's there are some things that kind of raise some concerns for me in regards to um, what is the overall strategy and I think what happens sometimes is that there's so much pressure from so many different angles that it spoils the soup so to speak because um, in my opinion the cleanest order was the strictest order in the very beginning um, but, you know, like, again, and this is my personal opinion is that if I was a small business owner, I would be very frustrated, um, right now seeing that if I walk into a Sam's club or, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to use names, let's just say big box. Or any you can big say box. whatever you like. We're having yeah. a chat from my living room to your office at home. <laughs> Thanks. Any big box store and seeing that there's hundreds and hundreds of people shopping there, um, and then to say that it's any less safe than coming into my crack seed store or my little family restaurant with four people, um, you know, I, I can see that being very frustrating. And that's my own personal opinion. Um, and like I said, like what I will say is that I do believe that that does create frustration in regards to any time general logic is challenged. So that goes for any law, right? So any law or any order, any time that the community at large feels that there's a challenge in regards to the overall logic of it. I do believe that creates a lot of frustration. Um, so Mike, I wanted to ask you in, in the world, according to you, let's say we come to September 23rd and we see that we're, we're still seeing some, some pretty large numbers there. What do you think should happen then from, from your view? Right. So from my view, I, I do believe that we have to, Try to figure out a way to not, or, or to be more fair, rather. So whether or not we lock down or open up, I'm fine with either. If we do open up, I think that there should be a lot of restrictions in regards to capacity of locations. I do personally believe that we should try to utilize, um, you know, mandatory mask wearing. Um, you know, the science, we have to really listen to doctors. I think that what we're not doing right now in my opinion, is really listening to the medical profession. We're really, you know, we're, we're letting businesses drive. We're letting people, the, the general community's frustration drive the decisions. And I personally believe that the medical professions, we should be looking at them and saying, you know, you infectious disease experts and, and you know, epidemiologists and all of, all of your great experience and knowledge, what do you believe the law should be in regards to um, mitigating community spread? And I think that that's 
I, I'm not too sure if there, there's a lot of that voice in, in the current restrictions. With the kerfuffles, I'll call them that, at the Department of Health and, and the change of leadership soon to happen as Bruce Anderson will be retiring, uh, Sarah Park is on leave, uh, we know that Libby Char is now going to be running the, the department. Do you see this as being the most opportune time for that kind of leadership that you've just talked about and, and that perspective to be more greatly out in, in the public sphere? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not too sure what the new direction will be. Like I said, I don't think that anyone could have anticipated this type of challenge. And, you know, you can't really dog anyone for um, being able to step up to this insurmountable task, as it seems, right? When we look back, we'll be able to say, oh, maybe this and that. But as you kind of the tip of the spear and trying to break through this issue, um, it's really hard to say, um, you know, if if you know if this then that um, scenario with the with the leadership change, I do hope that moving forward um, they will start to leverage more of the medical medical community's viewpoint um, in providing a strategy. Because, like I said, I think right now, personally, in my view of watching it, it really feels like it's a lot of economical uh, driven in regards to how do I satisfy um, the business community and our tourism and our current economical state. Uh, a state of economy, sorry, um, versus, you know, let's look at this as a medical pandemic and have the doctors um, provide a little more guidance. I want to talk to you a little bit about another aspect of mental health. You know, we have a lot of people who are spending a great deal of time indoors. And for some people, that is exacerbating conditions they may already have, or it may have brought some other conditions to the fore, or they just may be people who otherwise would be considered quote-unquote normal, but they're experiencing a great deal of fatigue, oppression, feeling that they are out of control of their lives, so much happening, even if they're working at home and still have jobs and feeling very lucky for that. I'm wondering if you're seeing now, at this point, after eight months of COVID and, and the various you know, orders that we've, we've had, are you seeing any increase in people expressing rage in, in communities, fires set, uh, increased domestic violence, which is what we hear from the domestic violence community, and what it is it that, that you think is really going on in those areas with people who may be inside and dealing with a great deal of mental health issues, whether they had them previously or not? Right, I'm sure. I mean, I see it in my own household where... Uh, my children are very frustrated. Um, I have a younger son who is very athletic, um, team sports year round. Um, that's that's how he felt good about himself. It's how he was, you know, as supportive as I am as a parent. That's where he would feel his accolade, right? He would get his great job, and and, and he, for the last nine months he hasn't had that. Um, and I can see the effect that it's having on him. He's frustrated. Um, he wants to go to the park. Um, you know, previous to this this last update. Um, you know, that was not an option, right? Uh, we could go to the beach, but we're, it's not the way that we used to, we're used to it, right? Where we can set up and have a nice day. It's kind of, you're in the water and then you're out of the water. So I, in my own household, I can see the frustrations. And like I said, my household is no different than anyone else's. The, you know, there is that nationwide trend of increased domestic violence. We haven't seen it yet here. 
Um, but I would be foolish to think that it's not a concern. So we are trying to track it very closely. We are going to have to pull some data points to see what kind of increases we're having because just like anything else, it kind of kind of goes like this anyway, where some months are worse than others. But um, you know, and kind of reflecting into my own household, I can definitely see that if 11, if an 11 year old is struggling, um, I would imagine that that could be the same for any age group. Um, and then you add on other factors, right? Like as far as again in my own household, where between me and um, my current girlfriend is that we've gone to a single income household because for childcare issues, we have young ones, she has young ones that um, no longer go to school, they homeschool. So now you add on all these factors to a household that maybe is not as stable as mine's in regards to, I've been very blessed to be in a financial situation that going to single income is not, um, you know, it's not detrimental. We, it, it's tough. I mean, you know, there's no CPK Uber Eats anymore. But, um, you know, we're going to have to kind of dial it down, but we're going to be fine. I, that may not be true for a lot of other households. Um, and I would imagine that that can create a lot of stress. I think one of the leading factors in um, divorce and domestic violence is financial issues. I believe it's one of the leading causes besides adultery. So if you have all of these people that are losing their jobs, um, frustration of unemployment, benefits not being paid, yeah, you can definitely create that. Um, unfortunate storm where you would see an increase in domestic violence. You would see an increase um, in poor decision makings within the household. Uh, fortunately, fortunately, we haven't seen a dramatic increase here. Um, but again, you know, to think that it can't happen would be foolish. When we talk to the Domestic Violence Action Center and Nancy Creedman, I mean, one of the things that you know she says is that because this is inside and people aren't seeing it and people are now with their intimate partners who may also be the ones who are hurting them, that these are things that are not being charted. They're, they're not being uh, you know, tracked in any sort of way until something happens. Same thing with children, that children who are in dangerous situations or high-risk situations because they're not at school and there aren't other eyes on them, that they are also in risky environments at home or maybe out on the street. Do you have any way of being able to, uh, to track this from what you're doing in your lane, given the, you know, the mental health focus that you have? And what would you like to see so that we could have better intel about what's really happening with our kids and with our adults who may be in very dangerous and risky situations at home? Right, so it's very challenging, and um, yeah, Nancy has a lot, of, a lot of good points in regards to that type of fear. And it's one of those where um, you know it's really hard to say if it's not or not happening, and that's the that's the real issue, right? Is if it is happening, that's a problem. If it's not happening, then it's not a problem. But I will say that in regards to people being home, and because of the way that Honolulu is set up, where you know if my neighbor, you know my neighbor is only about fifteen feet away. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, it's one of those where since everybody is home, if that was an issue, um, you know, we would hear it. You, you get what I mean? So it's one of those where, yes, we're trapped at home, but everybody's trapped at home. So, um, you know, it's, it's, tough, it's tough to say. You know, I haven't heard my neighbors screaming unless, you know, but they always say, right, if my neighbors are quiet, then maybe I'm the loud one. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it's tough. And I think the way to improve that, I think with social media, it's less and less. Um, uh, uh, 
are it's it's more visible it's less it's 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 less hidden because you know for example in regards to social media it's like all of a sudden if somebody stops posting you're gonna call them right versus the old days where you know you don't know what's going on with somebody you just think they're fine so i think that definitely there needs to be more education i think that there needs to be um you know more support for families during this time i think that um, you know, but but you could create all of these programs, but will somebody use it? That's the real question. I um, mean, a lot of times, as you know, anytime that there's a domestic violence, there's a lot of control in the house. So if it's occurring, it's very difficult uh, to say. So we don't have the staff to actually go door to door and, you know, kind of check on how people are doing. But I don't think that it would be a poor initiative if there was availability and funding, you know, in regards to CARES money. Um, which could be used to deal with mental health issues um, in regards to, uh, you know, COVID, COVID created situations, which this is a totally COVID created situation where someone is stuck at home. So I know there's a lot of money on the table and you pose a very good question is to how do you create a system to flag dangerous situations? And I think that, you know, just me kind of um, talk, talking off the cuff, would be to perhaps support a program where someone goes door to door and just, you know, hey, we got services. Um, you know, if you guys are having a hard time, this, that, or whatever. Um, but, you know, as far as the police department goes, is that we're very limited in regards to kind of knocking um, unannounced only because if we find something that we shouldn't see, it leads to that whole uh, the challenge of discovery in regards to criminal law. So that's where it gets challenged. And that's actually one of the challenges I've had um in my initiative is that when when our officers are walking up to someone to offer services is that a legal encounter right and and basically we found was that it has to be consensual so um you know moving forward to answer your question and to stay on track um i do believe there needs to be better ways and it would have to be a non-law enforcement entity to carry that out um to go ahead and try to explore of course you would have a conduit to law enforcement but it can be managed by law enforcement but because HPD is often the gatekeeper for all of this, how would you ask other people to engage in, in the well-being of others without feeling that they're being snoopy? Or are we saying it's okay to be snoopy because we are in extraordinary times and extraordinary times can truly change people? And then, for, you know, therefore, do we all have to respond very differently and, and be able to to call HPD and say, I think something's happening, or I've heard my neighbors, you know, shouting each other periodically without it just being a nuisance call, but to really say, I think there may be something going on there. Do you think that, or are you asking in the absence of a program to do something like this, that people uh, be willing to risk it and make a call and check on the people around them? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think um, both ways that, yeah, I would, advocate for definitely a, some type of um, short-term program to help identify some of the issues that you brought up. But I, I think that as a neighborhood, we should always be snoopy. We should always be caring for our neighbors because, um, you know, I don't know how many times there we've got to a scene in time, meaning that it was only verbal. Um, right. And I think that had the neighbors not called, I've, been, I've personally been in situations where I truly believe had we not been called that something bad would have happened. They were that close. So I always encourage, um, and I think all of our officers encourage, anyone who thinks that something's going on, it's their duty to report. You know, I mean, 
I don't know how many times where we've had these very tragic abuse cases and then you'll see the neighbors come out and then, you know, they've on social media or the news and say, I, we kind of wish we said something. So instead of living with that regret, just call, let us deal with it. You know, what, what we always try to encourage is if you call 911, it actually empowers the police department to go knock on that door. Um, without that call, we really don't have much legal right to just go door to door. And, you know, we like to check on your status and talk to your wife and kids. Um, you know, that would be a huge legal battle in regards to um, search and seizure and what we, what we discovered in that, in that uh, encounter. But as a neighborhood, if you call it, I have every legal right to go check on it because your neighbor said, um, which they can remain anonymous. You don't have to say, you know, Mike Lambert is calling in on my neighbor next door. You can say we got an anonymous call of shouting. And that, in, that empowers the police department to knock on that door and ask questions. So I definitely, definitely would encourage anyone who um, hears this to encourage people to call 911. It really empowers the police department to take action. And a lot of times we're not mind readers and anybody would know their neighborhood better than us. Um, you know, in regards to like my own neighborhood, luckily I live in a very good neighborhood now, but, um, you know, in, in previous, uh, you know, when I lived in other locations, I knew which house was the yellers, you know, and it always was concerning. Um, you know, I'll, I'll whistleblow on myself and say there are a couple of times that um, I called it in because I wasn't comfortable with the level of um, argument uh, that was occurring in that household. And, you know, who knows, right? Maybe, maybe I saved someone from getting hurt, right? Just by calling that making that call. So I would encourage anyone to make that call if they feel that something is going on, you know, or if you see the kids, um, you know, I think that if you see the kids kind of sheltered or bruised, yeah, call it and let us, let us look at it. Let us take a peek. Um, you know, uh, even if it seems silly, like, Oh, the kids, they don't come outside anymore. Um, you know, we're concerned. That's good enough for us. We can go check, you know, Oh, you know, people are concerned. I guess there's kids in the house and they're not seeing them. We just want to do a welfare check. There's these little, little phone calls that actually go a long way to empower the police department to look. Let's talk about the inverse of that for a second, because not that long ago, we had the case in Diamond Head, where officers did turn up, and that ended up being the last days of, day of their lives. And clearly, there was a mental health issue there. Clearly, there were issues of, of who knew that there were firearms there, but the, just the conflagration that that caused of what has been the internal response since then to that now that you know it's moved off of the minds of a lot of people but it's certainly very much on the minds of those in hpd as now they're approaching a home or as you're asking people to call in and they would be knocking on doors uh, i know hpd officers know what they sign up for when, when they sign up for it but how has that translated into maybe a different way of approaching a, a knocked door knowing what we know after what happened at Diamond Head. Right, Diamond Head was very tragic and I think that it's an even bigger tragedy that was overshadowed by the pandemic. Um, right after that tragedy there was a lot of legislation we we're still in session um, to push for mental health um, laws and to push for actually firearm laws that could potentially save another Diamond Head incident from occurring. Um, it's unfortunate it's derailed by COVID. I, I hope that the steam is not lost and it's just been shelved um, into this next lead session and we can go ahead and move forward with having the ability for officers to um, initiate a mental health evaluation um, without the use of a third party. 
Uh, I think that there needs to be a little more regulation on how guns are transferred uh, during, um, you know, when someone passes away and to make sure that those guns are for, because in that situation, those guns were owned by the, the deceased husband of the female who was murdered in that incident. And, um, you know, after a while, it falls out of the system. And that's a very dangerous precedent to have to where if those guns aren't responsibly transferred during probate or, or whatever situation that they just basically float around our island. Very, very concerning. And that's basically what happened in that situation is that our records didn't even show that because of um, uh, the way that the system was currently made. I think, he, um, you know, don't quote me on the, the, the dates, but I think he had been deceased for over 10 years. And, um, you know, I guess that was, it was, it was obviously a ticking time bomb. What it has changed internally is that there has been an increase in, in um, tactical training for that situation. But I will say that that situation was so, uh, how can I say that? It was almost unavoidable in the moment because that individual had decided that whoever came to my door was going to die. And, you know, in, in our profession, that's a reality that we all face. And I think that when KK and Tiff were killed, I think that it was a grim reminder, again, of what you said earlier, is what we signed up for. And it went from, okay, we're not LA or Chicago or New York to, well, even Hawaii, you can get killed at a doorstep. So it was a, it was a very grim reminder of what we do and the type of sacrifices our men and women make every day. And what, like, again, what I'm hoping for is in this next live session that it's not lost because of the impact of COVID. I really hope that we move forward in tightening up our, we have very strict laws. I don't, um, in regards to firearms, I'm not advocating for us to take away anyone's right to own. All I want is an increased accountability for transferring of weapons and for um, individuals who are passing or passed away and for probate to better track where those weapons end up. Should I, for example, I should pass and what happens to my firearms? Throughout this conversation, we've been looking at various threads of mental health in the homeless population, certainly those who are dealing with mental health conditions, looking at what's happening inside of HPD for a lot of reasons. As you see us moving forward, what do you think some of the greater lessons will be of this time for how the public and HPD interact and move through whatever may come next with COVID, because certainly we don't have a vaccine and we don't know really when all of this will end, especially if people start feeling frustrated and, and gathering again, and we have a great deal of transmission. But what would be those really good silver linings to end on a happy note here? What would they be that you would like to see carried forward in the way the public and HPD interact and what HPD is able to do for the public? That's a great, that's a great question. So for me, what I want to see move forward is that even in our programs, because what happened was, is that the Honu project, which, which you touched upon in the introduction was just a very small, you know, 20 people um, overnight type of project. And the post is upwards of, you know, 150 to 200. And what we've learned is that, um, if you give people a little bit of time to decide, um, they make a lot better choices. So, for example, the Hono Project, you had to choose two shelters upon entry. So that was, a, that was one of the um, acceptance uh, 
standards is that we'll take you in overnight, but you have to choose two of, you know, wherever, Next Step, IHS, and once upon, uh, and once they become available, then you would transition out. And we made, that was a part of a condition for them to come in. What we found with Post is that if you give them a few days, um, the, the, their choices are a lot more in-depth and they stick more, which means we have less recidivism. Because what we found in the Honu is we're telling them, choose. Oh, okay, I'll pick A or B. And then they go to A or B, it's not a good fit, right? So they, they cycle right back into homelessness and we start back over. What we found in the Post, because we had more time, because um, some of the shelters weren't comfortable with taking them right off the street. They wanted a, a slight observation period at the post before being comfortable with transitioning to their facility for, you know, for, for um, you know, good reason. We found that they said, you know what, explain to me that other, that other program again. What was that one? And what we do is we give them more days to choose. And then what we found is when they actually transition to that program, we don't see them again. Right, because they had time to digest, they had time to think about it. So one of the things that we're gonna do is if we move back to, you know, post transitions back to the home, we're gonna actually allow a 10 day period to where someone can come in and you know, no questions asked, you can shelter, whatever, clean up, start to regain, you know, your your humanity, and then we'll go ahead and decide what, what fits best for you. One of the things that I wanna push, which is gonna be challenging with the economic situation that we're in is that we definitely, definitely need a lot more behavioral health beds. We definitely need a lot more um, uh, detox beds because what we found out in the post is that over a quarter of them by day three are very, very willing to go to detox or some type of um, mental health uh, support system. And it's, it's, it's disheartening to say that the ones that left us was because they had to go basically feed the need and there was an ask prior to that um, for, for some type of detox program that's just not available. So um, I'll share some, some statistics. So we've, the post since April has helped over um, 550 people for at least one night. Most of them stay multiple nights, but at least 550 people, individuals were given at least one night of service. We've been able to place about, uh, I think we, we have to be about 215 or two, over 220 people that are actually placed. And one of the segments of that was to detox services. Now, the, the disheartening part is that um, of the 200 people that we couldn't help, I would go out on a limb to say 50 of them, a quarter of them would have taken um, a detox service had it been readily available for them. Um, so like I said, I, I really, really want to push that. I have some data points moving forward for Ledge that are real, real, because um, they were asking for it. They said, oh, can we go to detox? Can we go to detox? I'm sorry, you know, I really want to get support. And then they vanished. We, you know, any any right. any person can figure out what they decided to go do. Mike, um, would that be an appropriate use going forward for something like a Ka'ahi Street uh, facility to where you had beds people to come and be able to detox, not just to stand it up because of COVID? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, and I do believe that those are one of the ideas that were being tossed around um, prior to us having a resurgence in COVID. I think it was being considered. I hope that it's still on the table. I think that the facility, I've been to the facility myself. I think that it'd be great. Um, the way that it's set up does support, um, you know, uh, easy security and, and that type of thing. So I do hope that Kai Street is repurposed um, outside of COVID for behavioral health beds. 
Uh, I think that it would fill a huge gap, and I think that that would be a great start. I think that we need to also identify regional locations for rehabilitation. Okay. Like people, they want to just be near where there are. And what people, one of the biggest misconceptions is that if you're homeless, you don't belong. That's not true. Um, a lot of people, they tend to gravitate to where they grew up. And if you ask them, right, why not coast? Um, I'm from Kaneohe. And a lot of the people that live in those rural communities, they grew up there. And that's what they're familiar with. They like, they, you know, even though they're homeless, they still like to go to Times because that's where they went as a kid. They like right. to go the LNL that's where they ate as a kid and they tend to stay in the area so I think by having rehabilitation programs in an area that allows them outpatient treatment would really be beneficial it allows um, particularly in areas on the windward and leeward coast an opportunity for people to fix themselves where they are and I, I really hope that we move in that direction I know it's challenging and it's pie in the sky with the um, economic restrictions we're having but I think that it really really has to be looked at whether it be federal grant um, or even if, if uh, private care providers would find interest in some philanthropy. I think it'd be um, very beneficial to the community. Mike, I want to thank you for all the time that we were able to spend together this morning and to wish you all the best. You and the boys are back in the same household now? Yes, still with it has your parents? been great. Oh, good, good, good. For my, for my own mental health. Uh, yeah, that, that I think that was important. Conclusion, but yeah, it was, it was, it's nice to have them home. Good. Well, I hope you and the boys and your parents and your girlfriend and all of your family, her children too, everyone stays healthy and well and uh, taking very good care of yourselves mentally and physically. And we'll check in with you again sometime in the future. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Beth. I appreciate it. You have a good morning. You too. And for those of you who joined us today, thank you so much for being with us. If you have an idea for a future topic or a slice of this conversation that you'd like to hear, let me know. You can email me at Kozlovb, that's K-O-Z-L-O-V as in Victor, B as in boy, at SutterHealth.org, Kozlovb at SutterHealth.org. And we'll be really glad to entertain your questions and your ideas. Thanks so much for joining us. I'll see you next week for... From anxiety to clarity. Aloha.